WTBC Radio is sponsored by Live Bar. Please consider attending the Healthy Living Gluten-Free Expo on March 3rd, 2018 at Cascade Hall at the fairgrounds here in Salem, Oregon, where this very podcast is based. Uh, please come sample gluten-free products and hear from the makers of those very items. Find out uh, what's going on with those organizations and how you can enjoy a gluten-free lifestyle that's more to your liking. And of course, for more information about Live Bar, please visit livebars.com. That's L-I-V-B-A-R-S dot com. Live Bar. Eat real food. It's our conversation with Arvo Zylo. A musician and artist. And the mind behind No Part of It Records. Listen. Can't you hear those blood rhythms? remember fighting as a child this sensation of being dramatically different than everyone else and you know i fought it hard i think we all do uh being in school i think very much uh emphasizes this you know you can kind of get away with being in a family being kind of odd you know like and everyone has their place as uh, what strange thing they do that's different than the other strange people in your family. <laughs> so there's no problem there. Uh, but going to school, I think, really accentuates how different you are from most of your peers. And, you know, depending on when and where you grew up, this might be harder and or easier to deal with. Uh, my particular experience was unfortunately full of bullying, uh, full of name-calling, uh, full of uh, spitwads in my hair as I would walk down the hallways. And, uh, you know, there were times when a lot of my inability to find a place for myself uh, among my peers uh, felt like this might last forever, that I would forever be in this state where I couldn't relate to anyone around me, that they would all constantly throw at me some sort of behavioral code that I could never decipher and that I would just be sitting there going like, uh, what? basically for the next 40 years. And I didn't realize how right I was in those days when I felt like that. But outside of technicalities like that, uh, there was this other sense of, you know, wanting to double down, you know, of wanting to say, well, look, I might not fit in to what you think I need to be doing, but check this out. I actually don't fit into anything anywhere so fuck off and die uh but <laughs> that doesn't really get us very far in the world 
does it, you know, um, that kind of attitude of wanting to be so completely unlike everything around you uh, makes it very difficult to, you know, interact with jobs, people, bosses, all of these things that are kind of necessary, unfortunately, uh, if you want to, you know, participate in capitalism and have a house and stuff like that. But I think the lessons that we learn when we're fighting for our individuality is not just how we can fit in when we need to, you know? I mean, like, that's the one true benefit of going to school is not any of the shit that you learn. That's pointless. But the actual chance to interact with other folks and kind of learn these skills, I mean... It really isn't good for anything else, so hopefully we're learning how to say please and thank you. Um, uh, but it, you know, during this period where we're fighting for our individuality and whatnot, I think what benefits the most is our creative impulses. Because while we may not be able to find a way to fit into the world around us exactly the way we want to, through our art, we are able to express everything. We were able to express worlds, universes, volumes of feelings, of senses, of experiences that only we can share and only we have access to. And because of that relationship, it's actually encouraged for us to be weird and different and crazy and whatever in art. And that is what I think draws most of us in, is this idea that not only... Is art an escape for us to find a place that we can exist that isn't drudgery and boredom? But that afterwards, creating art finally gives us a chance to express these inner demons, these experiences where we just cannot find a way to connect with the world around us. And uh, how we interpret that experience as well. Arvo Zylo does an incredible job of not only producing art that really speaks of his interests and of his experiences and of the world that he wants to create through sound, uh, but he actually seems to manage to live a, a, an individual and unique life as well without any of the modern trappings of uh identity crushing us into needing to buy Cosmo and having to catch up on all of our favorite CW superhero shows. You know, for whatever it's worth, Arvo is a truly wonderful and talented voice that is not the kind of thing that you're going to hear anywhere else. Uh, he's carving out a niche for himself, and even niche sounds like the wrong word to use because... It, when you're confronted with the music that he makes in Blood Rhythms or any of the audio projects that he's involved with, there is this sense that uh, this is not just music, but some sort of expression of some interior desire that uh, he's managing to shape through sound. It doesn't necessarily sound like a pop record or even an industrial record or a noise record for that matter. Uh, pigeonholing Arvo Zylo is like one of those fruitless tasks that we all do. And uh, then when you uh, come across one of his like uh, 
I mean, truly amazing records uh, where he's remixing Ferrante and Techner. I, I mean, <laughs> Ferrante and Techner. Teacher? I'm never going to be able to say that correctly, so please, write me. I guess what I'm getting at is that, you know, uh, I mean, we address within the interview uh, the scope of uh, his audience, and, you know, for someone like him, that's really kind of a secondary thing. We're not trying to build crazy audiences, take over radio, become a TV star if possible. That's not what Arvo Zylo is about. Uh, but, uh, you know, for someone like him who is absolutely unparalleled in presenting his true self to his audience without compromising the art in any way... Uh, that's something I look for in almost everything that I want to engage with. And, you know, there's a reason that I keep coming back to his Blood Rhythms records. Uh, I think that there's something in there that we could all learn in terms of expressing ourselves in a way that is not just following the herd. I mean, we might do that for work or when we have to go to the store or something, but when we put on an Arvo Zylo recording... We're transgressing, too. We're kind of looking at the world around us and going, you know what? Fuck you. I think this is music, too. WTBC Radio in beautiful anywhere, anywhere. This conversation was recorded on January 11th, 2018. So on the... um. On the recordings and stuff that you were working on for this, uh, or, or you're preparing for in terms of this new studio trip, uh, is this going to be like a blood rhythms, or what? What, what, what kind of project is uh, are you working on for this one? Yeah, it, it's it's blood rhythm stuff. Um, mm -hmm. In May and in uh, July, I did two performances with blood rhythms, and um, I'm trying to tie those down in a studio situation, and um, you know, I've been getting, I've, I've got, I've got remote recordings from a lot of people, and I'm still getting more. Um, it, it, it's been a thing where it, it's like I can't recreate the live situation. The live situation is pretty profound to right. me, but um, you know want to have uh, a sort of integrity to the piece itself but also the concept of you know that it's not live and you're not trying to put somebody in a live situation you're putting them in a introspective home listening stitch situation and it's a it's a different dynamic but it's it's also um less limitations in some respects because i'd like to have like 50 layers of things Right. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I can't have 50 layers of things live, but um, the, 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 the stuff actually deals with um, object permanence and distance, like the concept. Mm. Okay. You know, um, the last performance I did in Chicago, I actually ran around outside with a walkie-talkie, and the walkie-talkie was plugged into the... PA and there was also a tape deck that was playing a cassette recording of what I was also saying in the walkie-talkie. So it was kind of like nobody knew what was happening. They didn't know that I had a walkie-talkie or they thought that it was just a sample. They thought I just left for good, like I was gone and, um, <laughs> in the middle of my set. 
So I come back in during my set, and then uh, I, I took a tape recorder that has a little speaker on it, and I just left it at the door, and I walked out again, and people just kept playing. The people I was performing with, they just kept playing. And so <laughs> when they finally stopped playing, there's this little cassette recording, you know, playing. And I I was gone for a long time, so people are kind of awkwardly clapping and whatnot. So, you know, <laughs> uh, just, just fleshing out the idea of doing this in a, in a studio environment where you don't have that element, you know, the visual sure. element of... Well, and that energy, too, of the audience kind of feeding off of... I mean, because you know, the, conceptually, you're addressing uh, through the performance like this idea of like you kind of being there and not being there at the same time, uh, and that's something that's hard to do on a record. Like you have to you have to approach the record with a different concept than you can in a in a stage show. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so it, that that piece also ties into the piece I did before it, which was um, uh, dealing more with the concept of death, like. Yeah. Uh, you know what what uh, dealing with lo- the loss of loved ones it's like what's the difference between the loss of a you know someone passing on and, and being on vacation or something it's like you know <laughs> right i i'm not in this room right now uh but you know what does that mean uh, mm-hmm. just because you think or you think you know that it's permanent uh why does it cause different emotional reactions to you you know that kind of a thing right um, yeah just like you know there's a certain primal feeling that happens when you know that your friend has died or somebody you care about has died right uh you know so it's it's just dealing with that i mean animals you know i find animals fascinating because they apparently you know uh according to scientists or psychologists or whatever you know, a cat will chase around its own image in a mirror and not realize that it's, you know, it's 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 him. You know, that's oh, me. Oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, you know, it's also said that animals don't know like that they're eventually going to die. They don't have a sense of mortality, although mm. they do. You know, when they're dying, they do have the instinct to go somewhere to die. I mean, you right. know, raccoons always find that crawl space and under that porch or something exactly. like that. But yep. <laughs> essentially the concept of object permanence is not really there for animals. So it's something I think about like, um, you know, imagine the torture that an animal must go through with uh, uh, separation anxiety from the owner, so mm. to speak, you know, oh, sure. um, like he's never going to come back every time he leaves. It's like mm-hmm. he's not just going to the grocery store; he's gone forever. Right. Yeah, our, we just went through this with our cat, where um, most recently, and we usually can get away with taking like short trips and you know leaving plenty of food, and the cat's fine. But this last time, there was so much separation anxiety that we think we're going to have to get a sitter just to stay with the cat while we're out of town because it's apparently it's just kind of going through too much while we are gone. Yeah, I, I've heard about stuff like that. I mean, my cat uh, my cat was maybe too old to, to come with me. Uh, he's 17, mm-hmm. but uh, early on when I got him, he would find um, he would find black socks and make a circle of black socks in the middle of my kitchen and sleep in it until I came back. Wow. Uh, I mean, he he stole. I don't know how this cat did this, but he would steal my shoes and stuff. Um, Trying to I'd keep you in the house. The, 
I don't know. I think it's like keeping a memento of me or, you know, a, oh, okay. a, a strong scent of me or something. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I would go down to the laundry room with laundry and then I'd come back up and there would be socks on my mattress that I hadn't, you know, picked <laughs> up from somewhere. So I, I don't, I mean, I just, I just can't imagine my cat running around with socks in his mouth. Or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, how many cats do you think would do that? Right. That's crazy. Wow, that's pretty wild. I th- yeah, there's definitely, you know, I mean, like the inner lives of uh, the animals that we live with are such a, they're such interesting places because I, I mean, I really get the sense that there's much more to my cat than just what people say is like, oh yeah, they don't understand their own impending death. They just, you know, they just exist. Because um, I'm looking at my cat and I'm like, I feel like there's so much more there, and I have to check myself occasionally, going like, maybe I'm. I'm projecting, like maybe I just want there to be this personality in there that I keep thinking like, oh, look, the cat's doing this cute thing. <laughs> well, you can look at it in a number of ways. I mean, you know, whether you can confirm or deny it is another story. I mean, right. uh, it, according to Philip K. Dick, you know, if you, if you know about him, mm-hmm, like if mm-hmm. you know about his, uh, his uh, hallucination, his breakdown, he, he claimed that, that animals knew, you know, what happens not only, you know, when we die, but before we're born and what life is like, you know, that, that, right. that life is just this fluid thing where the past and the past feeds into the present and the future. And it's all kind of at the same time existing, you know, that the future is all part of this now stuff and so forth. I mean, uh, it could be that. I certainly believe that animals can see some sort of aura. I mean, they, they can see uh things about humans that humans can't easily see uh with their eyes well i mean they they hiss at at people that are you know not supposed to be there like they have this sense of like what's supposed to be in place and what isn't you know and there i i I mean whenever something's wrong in the house our cat is hissing before either of us sense it (laughs) yeah and and i think they see ghosts and, and auras and um and there, there are other things, not just that, but I think there are other entities that are just kind of trotting around all the time uh, that, that they see, and and I can't see them. I don't. I, I can only suspect that they see them. But um, to me, it's undeniable. Uh, you know, it's not like I can prove it, but mm-hmm. you know, that's just uh, how we have it. Right. Um, yeah. It's interesting though, too, because like I think that uh, part of this you know, perception and the the way that we kind of uh, see the, the world around us uh, seems to be a bit of what your art is about, you know? Because, like, to say that it's just music is kind of like, um, that's one dimension of this. But, like, I mean, I have a, uh, one of your LPs where there's this amazing collage on the cover. Like, the performances themselves are not just music. There's always some other element to it, like... I think you really like to toy with the way people perceive things. Was that like a conscious choice in your? I honestly, uh, I have to. I, I don't know if this is being humble or self-effacing or, or what, but I, I, um, I don't have enough customers to really worry about what other people think or how they perceive things. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I just do things that I would be thrilled by. Uh, uh, I try to anyway. You know, like what, you know, as a music fan, like what would I go see? You know, if somebody asks me to play live, it's like, okay, um, what would I do that I would actually go pay money to see? Right. That's what I try to do. Um, 
And as far as other people go, I mean, I, 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 I don't know how to, I don't know how to please other people, and I couldn't even begin to try. <laughs> I, mean, I must be just reading and, into it because I feel like there's this kind of, um, at least, expression within the stuff that I've uh, listened to, um, this like notion of kind of like. I, you think it's going to be one thing and then it takes a left turn or it presents one way and then it sounds a completely other. And, you know, like um, that there's a, something about um, the way that we perceive art that you're trying to toy with a little bit. Uh, and, and that might just be what I'm looking for in art. So maybe that's what I, I put into it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you get that. I, I don't, I don't know how to, um, I don't know how to elaborate on that really. Uh, because I don't, I don't, I'm not getting anything specific from you. I mean, I, I get that I do collages and things. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I find there's a push and pull of, of things. Like for instance, I, uh, uh, for a while I was obsessed with just professional duplication, you know, with cassettes and, mm. to, you know, uh, rather than stuff being homemade, it would be pro printed and things like that. And that's still there. But uh, with, with one of the LPs that I did, the assembly record, I just kind of liberated myself from all of that. Right. It's like, you know, I don't want to have to deal with bleed lines and all this, like <laughs> all this crap about like dimensions and stuff. I just bought a bunch of uh, used LP covers at thrift stores or whatever and, and just, you know, painted over them or glued things, you know, over them. And that freed me up. Uh, each, each one was individually different and it had a kind of a time limit to it because I had many of them that I needed to get done. Right. So it's like being a person that's not really a minimalist. I mean, I really am not. I'm, I, I try and I try and I try to be minimal, <laughs> but I'm not. Um, that seems like a struggle a lot of us are having. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, that's it. You have an hour or you have this much supplies, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you run out of glue you're done or if you run out of uh, collage material you're done that's it no more nothing (laughs) so it's kind of like a dogma approach in a way where like you you give yourself these guidelines and these rules and then you go to it yeah yeah if i set myself with limitations uh i'm good that's why i i like to do stuff with a sequencer because it's not it's not a minimal it's not minimal. It's not like I'm just using a drum machine or something. It's mm. not really minimal. There's a lot of different things I can do with it. But at the same time, it's just a 16-bit sequencer. And if I try to make it do too much, it'll start malfunctioning and going kind of haywire. Right. So, um, you know, if I had all this... I mean, I, I have some stuff I can work with. I, I, I do really elaborate things with mixed-down sessions and things. But mm-hmm. if I had all this stuff to work with, I'd probably have a lot of trouble... Um, not using everything at once in like every instance. Right. I, <laughs> a little bit of overkill in a way. Yeah. And I, and I, even with what I would have, if I had, you know, 12 synthesizers, I'd have, I'd have a recording with 24 synthesizers just because. <laughs> right. it's, just, it's, always, it's always trying to push something. Yeah. If you can outdo yourself in some way, like let's try it. <laughs> Yeah, just working beyond my means is kind of a natural inclination for mm-hmm. me. So, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's that's the intention I have with art. That I, I don't know how it's perceived, but that, that that's what happens with me. That right. process. Now, you started in a year in the year two thousand, kind of 
pursuing uh, experimental music, uh, at least in this way, was there stuff that you did before that uh, in other mediums or in other ways? Or is that really kind of the, the beginning of you going like, you know, this is the direction I want to move in? Um, I, in, in, in high school, I, when I was born, I was an artist. I was, uh, I was, you know, drawing pretty elaborate pictures with crayons and, and I, I used to be ambidextrous. So mm. I would draw with both my hands at the same time. That's cool. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, by the time I was 18, I was set to be a graphic designer or something like that. I was going to school for it. I was in the advanced classes and I went to art school and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, once I went to art school, I, it just ruined me. It, it was just, you know, this guy kept, no, it's really true. I mean, uh, the, the guy kept telling me I was doing everything wrong. And I was like, Hey man, you know, uh, I've been doing this since for as long as I've been alive. It's like, this is, this is a drawing of a naked lady and that's a drawing of a naked lady. You can't really, you know, I mean, you're saying that I'm standing, my posture is bad or the way that I'm holding my charcoal is bad. But it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, look at the drawing and, and tell me it's wrong. It's not, it's, it's just as good as anybody else's drawing. So a guy just was kind of riding me. Uh, I was dressed kind of like a punk rocker and I guess I was kind of an easy target. You know, I had really spiky hair and dyed hair and, you know, bleach on my clothes and et cetera, et cetera. And this guy wants you to do like form and function and let me show you the masters and like, let's go from the uh, uh, academic approach. And and you're like, but this is how I feel. (laughs) Well, it it, it was a figure drawing class. So it's just like, uh, you know, I, I I understand the desire and the need to to study anatomy and, and stuff like that, but I, I I was just at a loss for what I was doing wrong. He, right. he said that I was holding the charcoal wrong, and I was I, I I was according to him, but it still worked, and I, I just couldn't draw well without it being that way. So mm-hmm. eventually, I just told him, I you know, if I want an opinion from someone, I'll take it from someone who didn't settle for a teaching job, and I walked off, and I, I was really. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I was really discouraged at that time, and uh, I didn't do anything for like six months or something. And eventually, I I came around. Uh, various life events came or had me come around to being in a situation where I was in a band. I had a drum kit in high school, but I never really got to practice it, and I still had no musical inclination ever. But I, I was in a band, and they mm-hmm. put some, uh, you know, groove machines in front of me, and <laughs> It, it, that became the thing. It was like I was just sitting in front of it for six hours and and completely elated to, to do that. And uh, you know, it wasn't a career choice. It was just that, that's that's what I'm going to do now. It's like right. instead of worrying about my technique for realistic illustration, which you know, of course, would get outmoded more or less anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just more rewarding for me to just be totally free with sound because I I liked what I was doing but I didn't know what I was doing right and so it was more of a gamble to, mm. to not know anything about it did you find that part of it attractive to because it was more of a gamble you're like because it's more of a risk I want to do this yeah I, I mean I, I wasn't an expert at everything with visual art either or graphics but um I guess I was able to execute whatever I needed to get done with that and so yeah, there there was a gamble element to it, but it was also that I could continue to make album art. I could continue to make art, but the thing about it was is that I was no longer 
interested in anything commercially viable after that experience. Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, I can appreciate now I, I can appreciate something that's technically driven. If it, if it has some sort of meaning or, or, or drive to it, mm. there's, there's something, there's some kind of spark to it. But for the longest time, I didn't like anything unless it was some kind of Dadaist piece, <laughs> you know, or children's drawing or something. Right. I just couldn't like it. It had to have some kind of outsider component to it, or you just weren't even. Yeah, I mean, when it when it, and I'm still kind of like that with with you know television shows and things like that. It's like if it, if it's so commercially viable, uh, it's it's just not for me. It, it's like right. anything that lowest common denominator is, is my concept of the lowest common denominator is different from other people, I guess. <laughs> if you want it, you can have it, but you gotta learn to reach out there and grab it. If you are looking for professional photography and contemporary style and glamour, then J. Jean Portraits is your destination. Based right here in Salem, Oregon, just like this podcast, J. Jean Portraits can offer the right kind of photos for the project that you have in mind. Family photography, personal branding, magazine-style fantasy photo shoots, band photography. J. Jean Portraits wants you to look and feel your absolute best, and they know that professional work at a reasonable cost is the way for you to get there. WTBC radio listeners will be able to take advantage of a contest where they will be able to enter and win photography package by J. Jean Portraits. Please keep listening for contest details and how you can win these awesome, awesome deals. But until then, please visit jjeanportraits.com for a dazzling gallery of photos that will help you decide what kind of photography package will work best for you. Home, business, or just because you're feeling sassy, J. Jean Portraits will deliver these perfect snaps every single time. That's jjeanportraits.com, a professional look tailored specifically for you. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you're right too. Uh yeah, I, mean, I I I've been spending a lot of time uh watching kids and so I, I'm I'm astounded at the um uh kids television and the quality of it which just seems really abysmal lately and it's like it's really hard to find these like gems of even things that i will sit through let alone things that are good um because uh there's just so much dreck that's just cranked out <laughs> yeah it, i mean i started noticing that when i was pretty young i mean um you know i, I don't want to offend anybody i have some friends that like animaniacs and stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but when i saw animaniacs i just thought it was drivel i just thought it was absolute garbage i mean there was nothing humorous about it uh what it, uh what is it, it uh there was something that came after duck tales like right mm. after dark wing duck oh yes everything went to crap as far as the, the <laughs> franchise of, of donald duck uh children or whatever it was yeah well and it took um, me years to find the comics that it's all based on which is infinitely better than any of the um animated shows that they made like those old Donald Duck and uh, Scrooge uh, comics are hilarious, but you know, I didn't know that when I was a kid. I just remember this animation that got worse and worse as I was getting older. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, the, the 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 Babs Bunny and all that stuff that 
garbage. <laughs> and, and I don't, I feel like, you know, I, I'm not being a curmudgeon. I feel like it's objectively garbage. Um, well, the, and it's almost designed the, the, to be kind of disposable as well, where it's like, eh, it'll be on for a couple of years and then we'll just toss these out with the, with the trash. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that was kind of how it started with the beginning when they first started having the sitcoms in the 60s. They, they didn't really intend for them to last too long. Right. Like uh, Adam's Family and the Monsters, they were both successes, if I'm not mistaken, but they were still, they, they didn't get more than two years. Right. Uh, two, <laughs> I think they would. Two seasons. It's that um, rerunability that made those shows as good as they were, you know. Like a lot of other stuff didn't work as well when you'd show it over and over again, but... I think Adam's family is just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, the, those, if you call them comics, uh, you know, those are brilliant too. Mm-hmm. I've seen those. Yeah, yeah. Those, uh, Charles Adams, I think is his, uh, his first name. Yeah. 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 He's got a nice uh, uh, style and sense of humor that feels a little Victorian, but it's very um, modern. It's got a tiny bit of that Edward Gorey, but it's still rooted in, in, the, uh, in the current era. Yeah, but it, but the world he uh, maybe inadvertently created with with what eventually led to the show is just it's something that you, it's almost palpable. It's mm-hmm. like there there are people who um, have you heard about this? I actually did a blog about this once. So there there are people who are actually trying to recreate the house uh, for oh, Adam's family and monsters. That's kind of somebody cool. in Texas that. Yeah, somebody in Texas actually had uh, a replica of the Munsters' house built mm. um, somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Texas. But they they'll have tours around October sometimes to for people to walk around and see it. They they have the the little dragon guy that comes comes out through the stairwell and everything, <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, you know that that I'm just sensing a new reason to go to Texas. <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to do it myself. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Now, is, is you know, like, obviously, and I'm starting to notice this, too, with my own work, is that, like, as I get further and further into wanting to design my own mythology, my own kind of, like, image of how I want things to get, uh, the less and less I want to reflect on certain parts of other culture that is parallel to it, like... I think that's kind of what I'm, I'm hearing a little bit of is that like as you start to understand what your artistic world encompasses, you start to actually kind of shed some of those other things from the rest of the world that you don't need. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I have to say that I have been pretty curmudgeonly in the past, but um, I, I've never really, you know, it's just, it's just time, time. I, I think, I think the human brain grows in a way that it, time just goes by so fast you know mm, yes it does and, uh, <laughs> I, I don't i don't have time to 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 be bored with with some something on television or or, or you know music that i don't like or, or whatever it is mm-hmm. uh so you know you try to keep an open mind and stay fresh and stuff like that but you also you just don't have that much time mm-hmm. i mean time goes i, I don't know if it's uh, the earth is spinning faster or we're getting older and our brains are rotting or, or what it is, but right. <laughs> it, um, it, it's, it's nothing personal, you know, <laughs> but it's smart to be aware of that because like once you realize like, well, you know, if I have X number of years and I want to spend it doing Y, then I need to do a little bit of algebra before I move forward, you know, like, 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I've, I've, I've got an LP that I'm struggling to put out and get finished. I still need to get the art finished and, uh, it's already been mastered. So let's say when it got mastered, it had been in progress for six or seven years. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> this is so I, painful to I, hear. I'm, <laughs> and I'm still trying, I want it to be a 24 page booklet and, uh, you know, Mm-hmm. Who knows how, you know, with this, this kind of climate, it's like, how the hell am I going to sell any of these records? I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, and it's not it, as easy it, it to, to afford them, you know, like the, the cost of vinyl keep going up and up. Yeah. And then there's a, the waiting times and all that stuff. I mean, I've already given some money to the the, the plating company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could theoretically get the records done first and then get the jackets and the booklets done later. Right. But it's, uh, you know, it's going to have to be slowly but surely, like some kind of layaway plan type thing, unless I win the lottery or something. So, um, but, you know, I've always had a fatalist kind of idea. I mean, even when I wasn't thinking that time is going so much faster, I just kind of, uh, you know, feel like I could die at any time. (laughs) So Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. like get this stuff done, but get it done so that you don't have to regret it while you're alive. I mean, there's an album... I hate to call them albums. There's a release that I did, the 333 release. That one took me six years. And I don't mean that I worked on it every day for six years, but it took me six years to have closure on it. Right. And I still don't regret a single second of it. There's, I mean, you know, it's been eight years and I still, I think it's perfect. So that's a good feeling. Yeah. And this is the, um, uh, is it like a DVD package? Uh, that's been, it's been reissued as part of a remix album, which is, uh, 33 artists remixed it and some of it is uh, it's like five videos and I did my first surround sound piece that's like 40 Ooh. minutes long there's a three hour long track on there there's you know some experiments happening with the remixers I don't like to call it even remixers because I didn't give them proper stems or anything to actually properly remix anything I just gave them all the loops that I used <laughs> um, well, you know, it gets the job done could, yeah, so it's like a reworking or something, right? I mean, mm-hmm, I can't. Mm-hmm. Is that a collaboration or a remix or what? I don't know. But anyhow, um, I I I talked to Yasutoshi Yoshida in a, in 2010 about doing this, and he did the cover art for it in 2011. Mm. And I didn't get this damn thing off the ground until 2016. It was December of 2016, <laughs> and. Uh, Jason Ogawa, I can't thank him enough. Uh, we went through this really frustrating process of getting professional menus done and stuff. Mm. And, it, and it was just tedious as hell. Both of us didn't know what we were doing. Uh. And, um, you know, it got done. So I'm just really happy that it's done. But at the time, I sent out so many copies to everybody that I didn't have a lot of time to send out promotional stuff. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, who's heard about it and everybody, you know, Everybody who has heard about it, just is, I don't know. It's like, oh, so what? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, like, it takes so long that they're already moved on to the next project. <laughs> well, I feel like a lot of people in, in experimental music, it's like if it's not on vinyl or cassette, it's not valid. And, oh, yes. Uh, I, I just come from a background or whatever. that I've always had a feeling that it's like, you know, if this guy believes in what he's doing, then support him. It doesn't matter if it's eight track or mini sets or whatever. Right. Yeah. the The format is also sometimes a choice too. Like as artists, you know, we could do almost anything in any form, 
but sometimes the work demands to be in this form, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes it, sometimes sometimes something needs to be on cassette because of it, it just has this nice muddiness to it or it works or, or uh, sometimes it needs the clarity of not losing frequency range with the CDR or CD or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's, and sometimes the art just, you know, it, it needs to be a digipack or a jewel case. Or, yeah, it, but I just don't understand, especially with cassette. It's like, okay, I get it. Especially if it's home dubbed, it's like, oh, that thing is unique, kind of, because it was dubbed that one time, and blah blah blah. And maybe right. it's hand numbered. I get it, totally get it. I didn't listen to anything but cassettes until two thousand one or right. something. I had nothing but cassettes, so I get that part. But I just don't understand. Like, uh, people try to make the excuse about archival purposes, and uh, mm-hmm. you know that cassettes last longer than CDs and stuff like that. I just think it's. I think it's BS. I think it's uh um, Yeah. I mean, I've got it's CDs like clicky that stuff. I've got CDs that've been uh, burned CDs that have been sitting around for like 15 years that are still, you know, they always say that 10-year thing like, "Oh, those CDRs won't last more than 10 years." Like, they're fine. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, obviously they won't last forever, but like none of this will last forever. Um, but I, yeah, yeah, the form that you were talking about, <clears throat> there's one release that you put out, uh, one of your sequencer works on personal archives that I think worked tremendously well as a tape. Um, just from the like the sound of it and the design of it, because um, it had those kind of um, uh, uh, flamingo um, elements yeah. in it. And uh, I think there was something about that that like the cassette aspect of that really, really worked well. That, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't, you know, I, I'm trying to envision it in other forms. <laughs> it, it seems like that's kind of what it was meant for. Well, thank you. Uh, that that was an idea that has been batted around since 2008 or something. I've been trying to get people to do that kind of art for uh, you know almost 10 years, <laughs> and I, I, I finally found somebody that was able to do it. You know, because I don't know how to do it. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. With uh, I, I used to be a graphic artist in 1999, but now I don't know enough to really yeah, say that anymore. It's changed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they don't even do page maker anymore. So, you know, but I, I know how to do a little bit, but I can't do airbrushing or anything like that. So, right. Anyhow, uh, Tiny Little Hammers, who's been doing stuff for Timbal Tapes, has been doing a great job, and um, I just got in touch with him, and he was very patient with me. I was definitely a pain in the ass for him, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm really happy about it. Scott Schultz is a great guy. He gave me a great little write-up with line or liner notes and stuff like that and mm-hmm. as i say that would have been uh sequencer works volume one it, except for you know i couldn't get that art done so it ended up being <laughs> sequencer works volume three yeah it takes a little while <laughs> yeah yeah that's how i uh discovered your stuff though is through personal archives because i had met um bob when he was on tour um bob bucko jr i should say um and, yeah. Uh, so he was talking about his label, and so I was like, "Oh, well, well, let me know when you put stuff out. I'm I'm curious." And then, uh, so eventually, uh, he's like, "Oh, have you heard of Arvo?" And so that was my my entree there. Um, uh, but it's fascinating how like that network where you still have to hear about things from people. You know, I, I feel like you, supposedly the internet was a, was going to democratize all this, and that we could just like find each other as artists and like. You know, uh, we would be on the same playing field as you two, um, but I still have to have somebody yeah. like you know tell me about bands. <laughs> you know, like it, well, in my opinion, 
Um, I remember when MySpace first got popular, and that was a, a kind of a heyday for the internet because mm. uh, I discovered with great enthusiasm all these random, you know, musicians or whatever. That, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been able to find any other way. I mean, YouTube right. wasn't really a thing in 2004 or five or whatever it was, mm-hmm. and I. Um, I mean, I found that people were really enthusiastic about about stuff, but then, of course, it got overridden with spam, and then people became jaded and calloused, and now it's like the enthusiasts are kind of uh, inside the woodwork, right. and you know, you kind of have to have somebody else do the word of mouth thing to bring them out, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, and um, it feels, in a way, like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Like there's some element of it where much like in the late nineties, all of the best stuff is still people hanging out going, Oh, you know, I think you would like blah, blah, blah record. You know, that seems like it's up your alley. And that's still how I hear about the best stuff. (laughs) Like it's not stumbling on a YouTube video or, you know, like some uh, podcast stream. It's, it's people telling me this is good. Check it out. (laughs) Yeah, I, 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 I still, uh, same thing with touring and playing live. I mean, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, playing live to even 10 people, you're going to be more receptive to those 10 people than you could possibly be on the internet when they're just busy doing their thing with Facebook or whatever they're doing. Yeah. They're often like listening to it in the background while they're doing 10 other things. <laughs> Yeah, and you really got like for some people, it's like you really got thirty seconds. If you don't, yeah, if you don't have a track that wows them in thirty seconds, they're onto something else. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, someone might have to sit through something for more than thirty seconds before they go outside to smoke and maybe actually see what happens. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of people give at least one song per, you know, like depending on the group, maybe a few minutes. Um, uh, before they check out, you know, like it, it, that live experience, you you have to engage with the art a little bit before you can say I'm not into it. But on the internet, it can just all be background noise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I've certainly tried. I mean, I've tried promoting in every way possible on the internet, but it, 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 I really feel like it's just it's just better to get off and tour because you have to spend a lot of time in the internet to book a tour anyway. I mean, yeah, that's true. Um, it's basically like a full-time job for a month or two in order to get a, a couple weeks or maybe a month booked Yeah, for me anyway. I think that's why it's so attractive for a lot of people to do like weekend and four-day jaunts is that like the amount of work just to get that many shows lined up can sometimes take a long time. And so when they're confronted with the notion of like doing this for a whole month, ugh, like you know, the, the hours start to add up and I think people are like, well, let's just do this weekend and call it good. <laughs> yeah. The job wise, I mean, there's not a lot of people that can take more than two weeks off anyway, but, um, sure. Sure. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to be able to live in Europe where I could take, you know, a month or two off and just tour. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, we don't all get to be lucky geographically speaking. Um, I got a couple more things here I wanted to ask about before uh, I let you go. Um, so, I mean, like, obviously, as you become an artist and start pursuing the work that you want to do, uh, it does no part of it kind of evolve out of that, just kind of out of the necessity of needing to release 
something through something? Um, the, the first release for No Part of It was a uh, locked groove 7-inch that had 55 different artists on it. And I had that idea since – it happened in 2008, and I had this idea since 2000 or so whoa that's awesome yeah i had the idea for a long time right and i um i didn't know that anybody else had ever done it before so mm. i found out in 2005 or so that other people had done it you know mm. i went to wzrd in chicago and i looked through the records and i found lock groove records and you know uh the the triple r records or, or records mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. locked grooves and stuff like that and um so i i knew that i wasn't the first one to do it, but I still wanted to actually curate something that was uh, like, I don't know, you know, listening to a lot of the, the other Locked Groove records, it's like they they just kind of randomly threw stuff, stuff in there. Yes, yes. Well, I just wanted to curate it so that it actually was good. Like, I actually rejected mm-hmm. a lot of people. Um, I, I mean, I actually listened to everything at least once for an hour, you know, right. so if I couldn't chill with it for an hour, you know, just that repetitive looping for an hour that I wasn't going to release it. So there was a heavy curating process and uh, I intended to have some more compilations that fell through. Uh, One time I paid somebody 750 bucks to do a compilation cover, like to paint a cover and he kind of ran with it, but he gave me the money back anyway, after two years of not doing anything. There's another tribute album. Yeah. There was another tribute album I was going to do that, um, I just couldn't get the permission, the consent, or the blessing of the guy that it was going to be a tribute to, so I didn't do it. Mm. Even though I legally could still do it, I legally could still do a tribute without having his permission. I just didn't do it. Stuff yeah. like that, but it's it, it's mainly these ideas in that regard that deal with other people, and mm. also the the reason that I don't have a is you know I don't have a whole lot of other artists on the so-called roster is because I only ask somebody one time. Huh. If they don't reply or if they don't follow up on their own, I I just don't That's push it. it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't try to pull teeth with people or anything. So, yeah. but then you can also uh, kind of shape the releases that you put out to kind of fit the aesthetic too. You know, like it doesn't. You're not required to put out like X number of things before the end of the year, or like, oh, here's my yearly uh, December uh, release. You know, it's not like that. Like you're you're kind of shaping a sound, you know? Yeah. It's, it's not something that has a schedule by any stretch. Um, earlier on it, it was, there was more intention to, to do vinyl, but as I say, if people don't follow up and, you know, I, it's like if I offer to put out vinyl for somebody and they don't reply, you know, I'm not going to chase them down. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, those things kind of dripped off, but, Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's tough. It's like I I, um, I I wanted to also welcome people to do adventurous and things that are a little outside of their comfort zone, but I also want it to be uh, something they believe in, you know, something mm-hmm. they stand by, not not just uh, something that was sitting on the shelf or some kind of archival thing or right. just, you know, a document, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, each of these are almost like projects, you know, in a way. Like, they're not necessarily just records. They're almost kind of like, here's a concept. Here's how we would execute it. Here's the artists involved. Like, it's almost like a whole, it's like an art show in, a, in an album form. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, with Architeatis Ducks, 
Uh, mm. I, I pitched the idea of putting together um, just a compilation of tracks from CDRs that they've already done. Mm. And they did they did CDRs that were limited to like 20 copies, and they just came in a little sleeve and you know Xerox paper and right. Uh, so they they had some really great stuff that didn't get a lot of attention, and I just wanted to get it in a kind of a permanent form because unlike a lot of labels, I if if I do something on a pro CDR, it's going to stay in print for as long as I'm, you know, as long as that company is happening, as long as that data is still there. Sure. So, uh, you know, there are certain releases that, I mean, I'm not saying that I've sold that many, but I, there are certain releases that are, you know, there are 400 copies in existence or 700 copies in existence. I'm not one of those labels that's, oh, this is only limited to 50 copies. Get it while it's still there. It's like, I, I don't, I don't want to have uh, that kind of rush consumerism, temporal, mm-hmm like fadism kind of feeling to it. So got it. if I can, I'll keep stuff in print and, um, okay. Yeah. I, so, I so 700 copies is like the running total, not the, yeah, I, I see. That's just how much is happening right now. Yeah. yeah there's yeah. probably 800 of, of certain things right now. Cool. So, but yeah, no part of it is, um, a, a concept where it's like, it, you know, it, it refers to a lot of different things and it, it's not necessarily meant to be, uh, antisocial or, or, uh, misanthropic per se. Like for instance, it, it does reference uh, a lot of different things. But one thing it references is Tom Robbins in his book "Still Life with Woodpecker." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He, he he brings up the concept of uh, you know how how it's paradoxical to think that you can't be part of something. Like, basically, his saying is everything is part of it, mm, but mm-hmm. what is it? You know, the whole concept, <laughs> right? And Einstein and Neubauten, one of their um, mission statements was basically to be no part of it. <laughs> so it, it, it's it's kind of like it's not it's not about uh, no part of a social group or something. It's more about you know destroying structures and rebuilding them. Right. I'm sorry. Am I rambling again? Oh no, <laughs> no, no. To. I'm I'm into this. Cause, cause, I mean, this was something else I was thinking about. Is that like there there seems to be a fair amount of philosophy thinking now those seem like the wrong words for it i get the impression that when you are putting together this stuff that every detail is something that you're considering that you're not just kind of slapdashing any of this you know that like there's a, a a reasoned notion behind this thing is this way and this thing is this way you know like i i i really get the sense that this isn't just random um well, uh, you know, it's it's a mixture of uh, different neuroses, I, I'll say, because it's uh, for one, I am terrible at closure, very, mm-hmm. very, you know. I, so I, I I'd love to just slap something off and throw it off the table and, and get it done, but <laughs> I, I'm not I, I'm not able to do that, yeah. and I won't say that I've never done it, but uh, rarely am I actually able to do it without it bothering me. Mm. And it's also a sense of urgency. It's like a fatalism. Like I, I, I really, you know, I, I went through uh, a long time of insomnia. Uh, I mean, I mean, I slept ten hours a week maximum. So I, I was regularly going three or four days without sleep. I've gone as many as five, six days without definite any sleep at all. Not, uh, not, not, a, not as a challenge. This was just you weren't able to. Yeah, and I I went eleven days a few times. There was there was a couple months where I only slept on a bus that it, it, it would it would stop at the end of the line to you know I would go to work and 
you know, I, I'd basically be woken up by the bus driver every day. Uh, you know, it, it would get to the end. So whenever I slept, uh, I would wake up a lot of the time, no matter what the dream was, a brick would fall on my head and I would wake up. <laughs> it's a very crazy cat kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very cartoonish, but I mean, it was real. It was a real brick. It hurt. Like, mm. I wake up, it, I felt it. It hurt. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, it's kind of like a fatalist thing. It's like, you know, I guess I guess I kind of have that in life where, uh, you know, a brick can fall on my head at any time wow. right now, you know. So, it's kind of this mixture of that where I, I'm not happy with to just dash something off, but I'm also not happy to sit still either. And, and whenever you I get to that... Keep working. Yeah. Whenever I get to that meet brief moment of clarity, that brief moment where there's this, like, okay, this is really it. It lasts for like 30 seconds. It's like, okay, I'm done. And I'm really done and I know I'm done. And that's it. And then I just dash it off and I'm, I move on to the next thing. You know, it's very unrewarding. <laughs> as far as that goes. It's like this anticlimactic but, ending. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it feels good to still sit back and be like, yeah, that's the thing I wanted to do. And I did it and it's been eight years and I'm still happy with it. But, um, you know, there's another thing that needs so to be what? done. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it doesn't move mountains. You know, I'm not changing people's lives with my goofy little experimental music, but, um, you know, it's my sense of meaning. I was actually reading an article today about, you know, the developments in, in what they have unveiled about depression, mm-hmm. that uh, th- these things were suppressed in the 70s to a certain degree, that, you know, um, they, they had this window of time, the, the, the window of time where it's acceptable to be depressed without being considered mentally unstable. Oh, I instead see. Of, exploring that window yeah like you know grieving or something mm-hmm. grieving a loss or something instead of exploring that window they just made the window smaller so right. so instead of giving someone a year to grieve for their loved one they just gave them a month and then they gave them you know a couple weeks and they just raised the medication give them medication give them more medication right. tell them it's about serotonin long story short the study uh found well the article suggested that people who have a sense of meaning in their life uh, are able to avoid the depression. And the, the depression comes on from lack of control and lack of meaning in life, uh, especially as it relates to a job. You know, for instance, there are a number of different jobs where if a person has no control, um, they become depressed. But there's just the same position where you can give somebody a little bit of control and what's going on in, in their environment and they have a sense of meaning. Oh, so yeah. for me, you know, I've never had a job that was uh, terribly, you know, I didn't get to move around and do too much with it, but I always, you know, being an artist, I always did something that kept it going or I quit. Right. You know, even if I don't have a job that does that, it still causes me to have enough conflict to do stuff at home and, and have even more sense of fatalism about getting art done, you know, at home before I have to go to work in the morning, that kind of thing. WTBC Radio is also sponsored by Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce. Locally made in Portland, Oregon, Peggy's Sauce is 100% vegan and 100% ready for you to experience a taste explosion you'll want again and again. Available in three flavors, hotter melon, 
Ghostberry, Five Star Gary, Carolina Reaper. That's with avocados. Don't forget to mark your calendars for March 18th, 2018 for the spring seasonal release. Have some of Peggy's vegan hot sauce on pop-up menu items only available on this night. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think uh, you should check it out. It's going to be at the Twilight Cafe in Portland, Oregon. And I think if you like this kind of sauce, you're going to have a great time. For more information about Peggy's Sauce, including ordering inquiries, please visit Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce, all one word, on either Facebook or Instagram. Let me say it one more time, Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce, when you need a little something with an extra kick. Those hours do become precious when you realize that, like, you know, I want to use them as wisely as I can. And, you know, sometimes, like, yeah, I definitely notice it with myself, too, where, like, I'll be working, working, working. And then I'll take just a long enough break to realize that I have low blood sugar. And I'm like, oh, I need to eat. (laughs) Like, I could have just kept doing this and I would have probably crashed at some point. Um, But, like, you get in that zone where you're like, I'm being so productive. I'm getting shit done. Like, I don't want to... I don't want to give this up. Yeah, yeah, I, I've, um, I, I've, I've gone on that for three days straight before. I mean, I've turned off my phone. I've had girlfriends call missing persons. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, uh, it's a thing that happens when I, I used to have a job where I didn't have to call in a request off. So if I got into a zone, I just didn't go to work, and it was not a big deal if I had the money in the bank and it was fine. You know, right. um, sometimes it's if it was based on the weather or certain other elements, you know, sometimes it's actually practical to not go to work because I couldn't possibly go to work every single day, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I I never had that blood sugar thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, keep going until it's done or, uh, you know, just lay out, lay, lay in bed and pretend that you're supposed to sleep or something. I don't, I I can't get anything done until I'm actually at a, I can't sleep unless I've gotten to a point where it's like, okay, this is a good point for me to stop. Like it, it's a comfortable feeling. It's something that Ernest Hemingway said. He said it's very important to know when to stop. Mm. But um, if I haven't gotten to that point, to, to, to stop so as to say that it, it, that you have something fresh to come up with in the morning, where you know you're still feeling fertile, you haven't driven it all the way into the ground. But sometimes it took me three days to get to that point. So right, it's just how it is. Yeah, I mean, you can't fight with uh, that creative impulse because sometimes it takes that full three days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I had one more thing I was going to ask about, and then I, I, I'll let you go because I don't want to keep you too late. But um, uh, you and I both share uh, our interest in um, radio, um, and, and you did a show for quite a while, the Delirious Insomniac Freeform Radio Show. Um, was this all in Chicago? Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time at WZRD as well as that. Uh, the Delirious Insomniac thing was in uh, WLUW, but I mm. I first went to WZRD in 2005, and I had been sneaking in there. Uh, you know, I had I had friends let me in, and they would have me as a guest or something. But then instead of you know going home or something, I would just go through the library and, and you know like <laughs> listen to records, CDs or something. <laughs> 
Yeah, so if I ever went there, I'd come there with a spool of CDRs, and and sometimes when everybody left, I would DJ from ten o'clock in the until uh, six o'clock in the morning or something like that. Mm. So it it was definitely it was definitely longer than uh, just what I did at WAW. I, I I've been on the radio since two thousand five hmm. a lot. Uh, cool. Yeah. Now, is this something well, that you... Always uh, in Chicago. Oh, okay. Was that something you wanted to do as a kid, or was that something that you kind of stumbled onto after you became an artist? I have a friend named uh, Eric Labrat mm-hmm. in Chicago, and um, I would... I, I, I was always a night person. I was always a night person, mm-hmm. and he had a radio show where he spun soul music between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the morning. Ooh. And so... Yeah, so so I work until about 10 p.m. and then I hang out at a bar or something like that, and and then I just go down to the university and hang out with him while he was DJing, and eventually he started letting me DJ with him, and then we were co-hosts. And um, at that time, uh, somebody quit before us, so we were a four-hour show for a while, and then <laughs> four hours didn't work, so I had my own show after we did our show. So it was a, I do I would do a soul show and then and my free form show. And then Labret had to quit, and I didn't want to do the soul show and the other thing by myself, so I did the freeform thing for four hours for several years after that. Hmm. And um, I think it was a total of eight years that I was there, and um, that's that's just at WLUW. That's a lot but, of hours of show, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, four hours a week, you know, it was tough to keep keep it fresh. Yeah, for sure. That's fantastic. Well, and, and was this um, where you started trying to collect Halloween songs, or was that something you've just done your whole life? I've been working at haunted houses since I was 14, but I never really picked up um, records uh, until about 2006 or so. Mm. Uh, it's always been a specifically um, 60s horror monster rock type stuff like screaming lord such type stuff yeah yeah i mean I, I just like the kooky zany vibe of of that feeling and um it's a whole genre unto itself and there's just so many of them out there that i don't, I don't get bored with it but you know yeah. i even i'm sure i don't even remember but I, i'm sure i had those sound effects records as a kid i remember having a play school record player and having mm-hmm, those records mm-hmm. i just don't remember i don't really remember which ones right it, it it's it's just partially the art and, and and partially as a as a noise musician or whatever i i like it as kind of a ready-made composition you know oh, those yeah. sound effects records and it seems like almost like you know bands now wish they could sound like that because like those records consciously or unconsciously tapped into something that I mean, experimental and industrial artists have been trying to recapture over and over again. Yeah, yeah, there are some some artists that have done that kind of thing and uh, to good effect. Mm-hmm. But you know, I I, uh, I I do wonder certain records if they actually studied music concrete and stuff like that uh, yeah. when they when they did it. Like Gershon Kingsley, you know, he did. Uh, oh, I forgot what it's called, but. Um, there was a track he did called Goblin Dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it called Ghostly Sounds? I think the LP is called Ghostly Sounds. I, I own it. It's yeah. in storage. But, I um, think that is, I think you might be right. But so. that one is, uh, you know, it, it's it's really great composition. And uh, 
you know, I just wonder how much they know about it. I wonder how much they were informed about that, you know, electronic music of the day, avant-garde, so to speak, yeah. electroacoustic, all that. That is kind of something I've but, always been curious about, because it seems like those guys may have been hipper than their bosses knew, <laughs> but it's it's all speculation on my part. Yeah, but I, I guess another element to the sound effects stuff is that it's... Uh, it's a little bit more raw. Like, I mean, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's it, it's just slightly outside of the academic context where it's like, you know, you don't have the beard-scratching art gallery kind of vibe. You you have this kind of freewheeling, raucous kind of sensation when you listen to it. For sure. Yeah, the Frankie Stein records are the ones that really have that feeling, too, of like this like complete kind of like lawlessness in the studio where... They're really just trying yeah. strange things, and it's and it's paying off. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I mean with the sound effects stuff, I mean it's like uh, ghostly sounds and, and sounds to make you shiver. Yes, um, that, or, I do have the, that one. The haunt, that one's great. The art's great too. Of course, there's the haunted mansion one too. Mm. That's pretty popular, I'm sure. So you know, it's cheap. You can find it for a dollar still. Oh, I'm sitting on several but, copies um, of it actually. That's <laughs> always yeah. in thrift stores. <laughs> Yeah, you never know when it'll come in handy. I mean, I bought a lot of stuff at thrift stores that I could never find in a thrift store again. And, you know, I bought David Bowie records in a thrift store in the 90s. I'm oh, sure I don't yeah. need to tell you, you know. Yeah, uh, it's so a, I, it's astonishing the, the, the way that's changed, too, because if I had been paying more attention in the old days, I would have bought, like, hipster glasses, because you used to see buckets of glasses in, like, the early 90s just in thrift stores. You know, like, cheap 50s glasses that nobody wanted anymore. I would have bought buckets of those and resold them to all the hipsters who want that stuff. And I would have bought more records because I remember seeing such cool shit that was like so cheap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you know, you got to store it and all that stuff. It, it's just wild to me that, uh, you know, a Nirvana t shirt from the 90s, somebody will buy it online, even if it's used on eBay mm-hmm. for like 100 bucks or something. Oh, it, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Oh, the kids. <laughs> yeah, the fact that people are buying brand new stuff for 80 bucks, like a shirt for 80 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, some... $30 for a coffee mug, depending on what's on the coffee mug for some people. Oh, yeah. I sound like a you know a curmudgeon, but I'm still just... I... Uh, you know, you're sitting in good company because our entire house is basically with like 60s and 70s thrift store scores because like... We don't like the style of modern stuff, and it's always too expensive and for not very much bang. Like, it, it burns out or falls apart in, like, a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, tape decks, if you can't find one in a thrift store, you might as well not even bother. Right. New ones are terrible. Yeah. Anything that was made after 1991, it's just going to wear out within less than 100 plays or something. I mean, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. True story. I'm sitting here with a handheld tape player that I used in the early 2000s, and it still works great. Uh, and then I bought a brand new tape player a little bit ago on the internet just because I wanted to transfer some cassettes. Uh, and it fell apart after one play. <laughs> and this one from the early 2000s is still working great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if, if you look at, um, I don't know if you ever saw this, I did a cassette that was uh, one copy. Hmm. It, it, was, uh, it was buried in the ground and it had a, a download code and, and stuff like that. But... Uh, <laughs> I, I dubbed that directly into a tape recorder that I bought for uh, $30, and it worked one time, and it, it didn't work again. <laughs> oh. It worked for that one tape. Um, 
and it, you know, I bought it brand new. It was in a package. I don't know how old it was, but uh, yeah. And if I hadn't lost some of the other stuff that I bought in the nineties, it would probably still work. Mm. I think. That's going to do it for us this week here on WTBC Radio and Beautiful Anywhere, Anywhen. Uh, I want to thank Arvo Zylo for talking to me. You know, uh, I, 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 it was definitely one of those people that, like, you know, uh, I enjoy the stuff that he makes, but uh, I, I just I don't know what I'm going to get when I actually reach out and uh, connect a phone call. So uh, it was very cool that not only was he patient with my questions, but, uh, you know, was willing to spend some time with me. For that, I'll always be grateful. Our opening theme music is by Paco and Laura Jones. And our closing music here is by the band X. Uh, Please visit anywhereanywhen.wordpress.com to find out all sorts of stuff about our program and uh, the fun things that... uh, are in store for you and if you live in the salem area please come to the space on february 28th we are having some live wtbc radio fun on stage sadgasm and some kind of nightmare are going to be performing live and they're going to be doing a little interview thing on stage should be a lot of fun and uh opening things up uh my little comedy podcast why did we do this is gonna try to be funny in front of people and keep our fingers crossed while we do it (laughs) that's how that's gonna go uh please come on out for the bands if nothing else uh the show starts at seven it's gonna be really fun um but uh yeah we're gonna do comedy uh at the beginning of the night if we can get it right so uh, please, that's uh, February 28th at The Space here in Salem, Oregon. Uh, should be super, super cool. And I think uh, that's going to do it for us. Uh, you know, uh, we've got some wonderful sponsors on this program now, as you've probably heard. You can find out all sorts of information about them at our website on the sponsorship page. But if you would like to consider sponsoring with us or underwriting or running a little spot, finding out how you could work with WTBC Radio, please drop us a line, austinrich at gmail.com. I'd be happy to return your message and find out what we can do for each other. What can I say? You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no show. Be seeing you. October 28th at a club here in Seattle and uh, I was happy about that. It, it, I went for four hours and I could have went even longer. But, nice. Um, That's cool. They were telling me, 
know, can you make it more upbeat? I'm just like, <laughs> no. It's, <laughs> it's Halloween. What do you want me to do? <laughs> So you know, I I know that you were saying kind of off uh, mic that you were um, getting ready to go and uh, do a recording studio trip. Uh, are you working on a new record? I've been periodically working on one for a long time, uh, a few of them. But um, yeah, long story short, somebody invited me, um, and um, I, I'm not sure the nature of the studio. I I, I think it has something to do with academic context but there's access to it and there the you know it's it's open it's free and um so there's a group here in seattle called photogen mm-hmm. and i did a split yeah so we're going to do some stuff and um i'm going to do some of my own thing and they're going to help me with it and then you know also they're going to do their own thing and hopefully i can help them with that you know, without any skills or anything like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I I kind of like the uh, the vibe that Photogen has uh, for uh, the stuff that they do. Like I, I that I'm really I'm really into that stuff. I, ha- I still haven't seen them though. Yeah, I think it was the first week that I came here. Maybe maybe the second week that I came here. Uh, I ended up playing with them, and it was ten violins. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. There's a good scene in in the Seattle area of people who are um they're not just uh doing like I plug my noise box in and do feedback for 10 minutes but that they have some really inventive uh creative experimental ideas. Yeah, um we um we played a show a show in the middle of an empty parking lot in the middle of nowhere with a generator. Somebody had a generator and uh I initially met the, the head guy, Blake, at uh, the place I think is called The Chapel, yeah. um, where there was experimental stuff on a weekly basis, or maybe it was a monthly thing. But uh, it was just kind of an exhibition of works in progress. Mm. And um, it was cool. It was just kind of an academic setting, but still very low-key. And um, it, the architecture of the building was amazing. It was like a, a university or a, a church you know, kind of a little bit both. So there's that. I mean, I actually, as far as scenes go, I hear that it's kind of diminishing. I, there's not uh, not a lot of venues, and um, I don't know, that, you know, just because of the way that everything is developing so quickly that the actual people who live here have to work so much that they don't go out, or mm. whatever the case may be. Yeah, um, there's yeah. a little bit of that syndrome in Portland too, where like you have to go to the surrounding areas to be able to afford to live, and then Portland becomes this place where you can't live anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of weird. I was just noticing with uh, my friends today that there's um, there there were 24 hour grocery stores, and 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 now they're they're no longer 24 hours. They close at one. Mm. <laughs> Unless it's close to a university, they're not 24 hours anymore. And just a couple right. weeks ago, I was in a, you know, was in a grocery store at three o'clock in the morning. It's like, you know, they don't do that too much in Chicago unless you're very close to a university. I, you know, in Chicago, there's DePaul and there's a grocery store 24 hours right. near DePaul <laughs> University. And that's where you were so, based before you moved to Seattle, right? Uh, I'm not mistaken. Like you moved to Seattle fairly recently. Yeah, in, in August or so. Was that a a creative decision or a a practical decision? (laughs) Um, Well, you know, there's not a whole lot practical about it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, 
more expensive. Of course, the weather is better. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, in Chicago, I had a lot of things going for me that, um, you know, they, they didn't add up to what was missing. And so it's sort of like uh, all my friends kind of moved away and um, there's not a whole lot keeping me there. Uh, right. I, I, well, you know, financially, it was, there was a job. There was a, I had a really cool, nice job. It was, it was a job that I didn't have to call in or request off to. And I only worked a couple hours a day, maybe three, four hours a day. Nice. So that was really cool. Um, but, you know, I, I, I was going to be a hypnotherapist. I got the certificate. And people in Chicago are kind of skeptical of hypnotherapy mm. or hypnosis. Uh, they think you're going to make him look like a chicken and breathe like a dragon or something <laughs> like that. And, uh, it's funny how some of those like weird ideas still persist, even though like we live in what century now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of Chicago. It's sort of like um, it's not quite New York, but there's so much crime and and a lot of uh, a lot of people move there from you know uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, or or somewhere in Missouri or Iowa or somewhere. Kind of kind of like they go play they go there to try to get famous and they end up being sneaky you know kind of jerky people. Mm. The people that actually grow up in Chicago are are usually very honest and very honorable in that respect, but. This, the people that move there kind of ruin it. So everybody's very, sure. very, very careful about the sneaky stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, so I could have opened up a place that was in the same area that my friend had a massage studio. I could have opened up a little office there right down the block from where I lived. Mm-hmm. I lived very close to the lake. I had a really good situation in, in a lot of respects, except for the, the, the friends were moving away, most of them. And it, it just, it just felt like, uh, you know, everybody's afraid of Trump and all that stuff. You know, the, the world is a very right. scary place, but uh, Chicago is particularly rife with fear. I think hmm. there's a sort of like reactionary fundamentalism that's happening in Chicago, where it's kind okay. of a cannibalism almost. Interesting. Um, you know, whereas in the Pacific Northwest, it's definitely more progressive and left-leaning. Mm-hmm. In Chicago, it's you know, it's definitely not a red state or anything. But it, the the corruption is palpable. I mean, every right. single avenue, the police, um, you know, the politicians—they're all sneaky. They're, I mean, of course, all politicians are sneaky. But we're we've got a mayor in Chicago there that is uh, very seriously considering selling selling off the rights to water oh. uh nestle is doing this in michigan did, did you hear about this they tried to do it out it? here uh but yeah that nestle's ruthless yeah so they're doing it in michigan and they're trying to do it in europe too but but Rahm Emanuel is actually just like cool yeah do that because uh they sold off uh they sold off the 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 toll booths i'm sorry that you know the tolls they mm-hmm, sold that mm-hmm, off mm-hmm. to a foreign company and they're selling. They sold off the uh, the fares for bus fares and trains. They sold that off to a foreign company. They're just selling out mm-hmm. all of Chicago, and um, you know it doesn't. It doesn't really help the morale of living there, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, and what could possibly you know, go uh, wrong with selling off the rights to the uh, public water? I mean, like, how could that possibly go badly? <laughs> like, oh. well, it, you know, it's profitable, but yeah, who's going to stay there? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. It's part of their push, and, and and every city's push, really. To be honest, is you know it's kind of to get the poor people out of the city. Uh, and right. Yeah. What, you know, 
what, what, what's happening in Chicago is people are going further south or further north. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's so violent in Chicago. That's the only distinction is that it's so violent in Chicago that you can still live cheaply if you're willing to live in, in a place where you might get mugged or shot or something like that. Right. And, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, it's really not an issue. You know, you can live in a bad neighborhood and it's, it's like, so what, you know? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the worst neighborhoods here are still uh, um, uh, relatively safe by comparison. I, I'm basing this on my one uh, week-long stay in Chicago, which was a blast, but... Uh, it was definitely a bigger city than I'm used to. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not sure if Chicago is still in the top three as far as crime rate goes. Mm. Like I, I mean, I think it's it, it used to be New York. New York dipped off, but I think it's been Chicago, St. Louis, and New Orleans in the top three, and maybe Houston for like the last twenty years or something. I mean, just lots right. of crime. Yeah. Um, whether it's a city or not, how big it is, you know, New Orleans is not that big. But you right. know, uh, per capita, it has a a, a reputation too. <laughs> yeah, as like a tourist yeah. uh, a, a tourist stop and whatnot. So it brings a lot of people who then also bring a lot of trouble with them. Yeah, I'm not. You know, I don't know how much the the tourists bring as far as trouble goes. I think it's just poverty that really does it. I mean, Chicago is uh, historically like innovative in in terms of segregation. I mean, they kind mm-hmm. of help. Mm-hmm segregation happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is the rep- reputation I've heard. <laughs> yeah, and it's still pervasive. I mean, it, it's um, it's very evident when you ride the trains, you know. It, it's mm. like very far north and very far south. Right. The skin color completely changes, and definitely the demographic. But, um, you know, that, that's, that's all changing, too. The gentrification is happening everywhere and all that stuff. But For sure. Long For story sure. short, 44,000 people a year are leaving Chicago. And, you know, um, it, it's, it's starting to look like St. Louis or, you know, Detroit or one mm. of those places. It's just, you know, I could see the shadow coming down the mountain. Right. Yeah. One of these places where, like, it seemed like it used to be great and now it's just kind of falling apart. Yeah. And I can see that I've missed a, a sort of a heyday with Seattle here because they're developing so quickly; it's ridiculous, and oh, sure. the art scene is, you know, really diminishing. I mean, you know, I walked into a, a, a break room at a job I was doing, and you know, there's this uh, time lapse photography of how quickly downtown was developing. It was just amazing how much had been built in the last two years alone just the last two years oh yeah so um, it's strange too because as someone who remembers visiting seattle quite a bit through my teens and then into my adulthood um i don't remember it changing as rapidly as it has in the last few years you know like it always changed you know stuff always was being developed but this feels like such a much more rapid change like it's just it's very unnerving yeah, uh, it's still less than uh, less than a million people in actual Seattle, but uh, there are there there are I think more than a hundred thousand people coming per year. I, I know it's better. It's a, it's it's stronger than Denver, and Denver definitely has a hundred thousand people a year. Mm-hmm. But I think it's this is closer maybe to uh, two hundred thousand, and and it's not that big. And there's not enough zoning for bigger buildings to be built, so. Right. Yeah, it's. I, I guess it's going to crash. Projected, it's projected to crash in the next two to five years. So you know, who knows how that will work out? Amazon just recently stopped hiring at the rate that it initially did when it first started. Wow. Hiring. Interesting. So uh, you know, maybe maybe it's a plateau or mm-hmm. whatnot. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. I'm sorry. I, 
I'm rambling here. I'm, I, oh I no, this is perfect. <laughs> this this is great. Oh, I grew up on this. Well, I was born in the south side of Chicago. Oh, okay. Uh, but I I lived in 25 different homes around the area of Chicago. I mean, and some of them were in the suburbs. I went to high school in the suburbs, but my parents were divorced. So I never really stayed too far from Chicago because my mom would live in Chicago and my father would be in the suburbs. Mm. There was very, very little time where I didn't at least part-time live in Chicago. So it's like, you know, um, north side, south side, all over the place. But, mm-hmm. you know, so still Chicagoan, but never really having a sensation of real foundations, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can get I get that too because like you know I have not really returned to any of my hometowns since I left them, uh, but I do still kind of feel like they're a part of me. You know, like I still carry a little bit of it with me, even though I've never returned. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's an odd sensation for me because uh, I I have a bit of a sensitivity to it, and I can understand what I've left behind. Like. Um, uh, my so-called roots, you know, uh, psychically are, are, you know, to walk around without those, like to walk around in foreign land and, and for good, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. intend to go back to Chicago to live. Right. So it's like, you know, this is what I am and I better learn this out of ground and keep myself stable, uh, without, you know, all these familiarities and landmarks and, you know, the history, mm-hmm. um, Psychologically, you know, it's uh, it's interesting to, to just watch this happen at this point in my life. But um, I, I came out here because it's, ge- it's like worst case scenario. I've never been here before. Worst case scenario, it's geographically closer to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> right. You can just uh, and and man, that border is very easy to cross. I've done it plenty of times. You'll you know, just walk right over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I really want to you know take a ferry and do something like that. But uh, still have to get a passport just to be safe. Oh yeah, I think it, you know, it's not like when I used to do it in the '90s, and you could just you know drive right over. Like I think you do technically need a passport these days. Yeah. I keep forgetting about back. 9/11 and and how travel has changed so much. <laughs> so. Well, even in 2003, I was with a, a lady uh, that we we went to Toronto and. Uh, they just wanted our state IDs, and that was oh, okay. fine. And we got back out of there. I guess the biggest part is getting back into America. It's not about leaving mm. America. It's like, right? You know, yeah. Yeah, in the '90s, they just would wave us over. They'd see the the uh, U.S. plates, and like we barely, we'd even get the window down. They're just like, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> now I imagine it's yeah, not it like, like that. <laughs> no, I, for us, it was just a trick of them trying to give us a speeding ticket because they that that border patrol just real snuck up on you you'd be driving for 75 miles an hour for you know a couple hours and then bam you know <laughs> border patrol right <laughs> and we did we did get a ticket and of course then when we got across the border we didn't realize that the speed limit signs meant kilometers so we're going like 40 miles over the speed limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, right <laughs> whoops <laughs> I imagine they're pretty nice. Yeah. Though. Canadians are very, very friendly folk. Oh no, we we uh, we had curtains in this minivan of hers, and um, the curtains were for us to sleep in the van, you know, without sun breaking in. And they're they're asking us if we're hiding anything. And, you know, what are those curtains for? It's like, uh, you know, man and woman in van. Uh, you know, <laughs> should be maybe a bit self-explanatory, but. Yeah, we like some privacy yeah. occasionally. 
Well, they were, yeah, they, I mean, they were really, they were, we were dressed, you know, in a little bit more of the punk rock fashion. So uh, yes. I guess we were more likely to be considered terrorists by strange <laughs> state police type characters. But There was one time when uh, we were driving over in a van and, uh, you know, they were, you know, really curious about us and they made us pull over and they're like looking in the van and whatnot. And at one point, they just flat out asked, he's like, so uh, are you guys uh, got a gig in Canada? And we were like, no, <laughs> we were just visiting for tourist reasons. And we realized at that moment that he thought we were a band because there was like five of us in this van. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. WTBC, anywhere, anywhere, from my house to yours. 